Joseph's son was the former president of the Romanian Missionary Society, holding their offices close by here in Wheaton, Illinois. Prior to living in Chicagoland, Pastor Joseph was the second Baptist church pastor in Oradia, Romania. Now, him moving from Romania to Wheaton, Illinois, to serve as a missionary society president might seem at first glance of no importance to you. But I'm confident that his story will be relevant to our current study in the book of Philippians. You see, the year was 1981, and for several years, Pastor Joseph was busy preaching the gospel and caring for the members of his local church until the communist Roman Romanian government kicked him out of the country, which brought him here to the U.S. He was exiled. What would happen to that Baptist church that he was pastoring? What would happen to the spread of the gospel in Romania? Maybe your immediate thought would be, well, I guess sometimes in life you win some and you lose some. Sometimes the power of an oppressive government that hates the gospel of Jesus Christ shuts down churches, sends out faithful gospel preachers, and forces people to move to places that they didn't originally want to live. Or might there be a different way to think about Pastor Joseph's story and about life and the gospel and Embassy Church? What if Philippians chapter 1 gave us good reason to believe that there is nothing in the universe that can stop the progress of the gospel? There is nothing that can stop the power of the gospel in the heart of a believer. I propose that's the big idea of Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. There is nothing in the entire universe, no force, no power, no person, that will ever thwart the plans of God as he plans for the progress of the gospel to advance to the ends of the earth. Not one thing. And there is nothing that will stop the power of the gospel in the heart of a believer. Very evidently in the life of Paul, and I believe in our lives, if we would so take up the lessons of Philippians 1, 12 to 26. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find this passage on page 921. I'm going to read the passage and make my case for why I think this is a good summary of it. Nothing can stop the gospel's progress. Nothing can stop the power of the gospel in the heart of a believer. You're going to see that in verses 12 to 18. Nothing can stop the progress of the gospel. And then you'll see a shift in verse 18 for the power of the gospel in the heart of somebody like Paul. Let me read the text first. And then as I finish, I will say this is the word of the Lord. And if you would like to join me in this wonderful celebration, you can say in response, thanks be to God. Verse 12 of Philippians 1, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment 
is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this word. And I pray that he will write its truth on our hearts as we work through this one simple big idea. Nothing can stop the progress of the gospel in the world, nor is there a force or power or person that can stop the power of the gospel in the heart of a believer? Let's work through those points one at a time. You can see the three main paragraphs in the Bible translation in front of you. If you're using the English Standard Version, verses 12 to 14, verses 15 to 18, and then paragraph number three, verses 18 to 26. I'm just going to break it into two parts. First, nothing stops the progress of the gospel in the world. And that's our first two paragraphs. Now, I mentioned last week as we started this six-week study in Philippians, very, very simply, one of the reasons why Paul is writing this letter is because there are Christians in Philippi that Paul came to and preached the gospel to. They became Christians. He helped establish a church, and then he moved on to another place. And then at some point, he got in jail. He could be in a Roman jail, he could be in a Roman jail in Rome, or in a Roman jail in Ephesus or Caesarea, there's debates. What we do know is that Paul's not with them, Paul's in jail, and that he loves them, and that they partnered in the gospel with him financially. More than likely, because he was in jail, he needed finances to live. Jails weren't like our prison system here in the U.S. We're talking 2,000-year-old, first-century Roman prisons. And I'll explain a little bit more of those details, but what you need to know is that the church in Philippi were some of the early first adopters to financially support Paul even when he was in prison. They didn't abandon him, and they continued to care for him, and he is thankful. So reason number one that this letter exists is that a man 
who helped start a church, received support from that church in some really tough days, and he wants to thank them for the ways that they have encouraged him and supported him. That was last week in a nutshell. We talked about prayer. This week, we're going to see that another reason why he's writing this letter is to help them not freak out, be anxious, be worried, just kind of settle down and trust the sovereignty of God. He is in this section turning from his thanksgiving and his prayers for them and his appreciation for their partnership. And now in the paragraphs that I just read for you, the general idea is I want to make sure you understand two things. First, what you heard about me that I'm in prison, I know that that might sound discouraging and that there's been reports, but it's actually been good. That's his first big idea. Second thing is that It doesn't look promising when you're in a prison. He could die. And he's saying, guys, you don't need to worry. Even if I die, I'm okay. So it's a really compassionate, sympathetic kind of section of the letter. He's wanting to make sure that they know that he's confident with God and his plans for him. And he's trusting fully in God's sovereignty, his reign and rule. So when we work through this, I want you to realize first that he's going to make the argument that I know it seems bad. I got thrown into prison for preaching Jesus. It's not where I want to be, but man, I want to tell you the good news about how God is using that circumstance for his glory and praise and advance the gospel. So let's start with there. Verses 12, 13, and 14. Notice where he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, so this is all past tense, They've heard the report. Paul's in prison. And he says, what happened has really served to advance the gospel. And he uses a military word to talk about an army kind of making progress on their enemy. The gospel is advancing, even though it seems like the gospel would be bound by chains, as he says in verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all that the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. I might be chained up, but the gospel's not. I mean, I wonder how many people during this time might have been praying that the gospel would penetrate the Roman elites or soldiers in Caesar's Roman army. And I wonder how many of them thought that it might take somebody getting into prison in order for that to be accomplished. Or to put it very simply, the guards are hearing the gospel, and people who are Roman citizens, non-Jewish, non-religious people are coming to faith in Jesus because Paul is chained up next to a soldier 24-7 every day for two years, at least in one prison sentence. Paul's imprisonment did not stop the progress of the gospel. Oppressive government regimes that hate the gospel does not stop the power of the gospel or the progress of it. It's, in fact, being advanced. So let's paint the picture accurately. As far as we can tell, the Roman prison system would have been that Paul, as we just heard read in Acts 28, would have stayed in his own apartment. I think the simplest way to explain the situation and circumstance is like someone today being on house arrest. They're not in a a facility where a bunch of prisoners are. Paul is in a house, and people can come and go and visit him, Again, read Acts 28 carefully again. David came up and gave us one accounting of Paul being in prison. And that was when he was actually in Rome. And it could be that he's writing this letter while in that stint of prison. He had several instances of being thrown in prison. 
So that's why we don't know which one for sure. But then we do have this word, imperial guard. And that could mean that he's actually in one of the palaces, because that word could be translated palace, or it just means someone who represents the palace, like a Roman soldier, is chained next to Paul. And I mean literally chained next to Paul 24-7 on six-hour shifts. They get a new soldier coming in, and they swap out the chains, and they stand next to Paul as he does what? as he invites people from around whatever place he's at to come in and hear the gospel. And we know from Acts 28 that he had the open door invitation for anybody to come and sit at his feet and for him to teach Jesus. So here's the cool little detail that sometimes people miss about the letter of Philippians. Did any of those soldiers actually become Christians? When Paul says that the gospel is being advanced through his imprisonment, does he literally mean Roman soldiers? Turn to Philippians 4, the very last lines of the letter. Those little greetings at the very end, sometimes they have hidden gems in them. This is one of them. Verse 21, 22, and 23 is the final little closing comments Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Yeah, that's encouraging. Paul gets thrown in prison. Oh no, the gospel's not going to advance. Oh no, it's going to advance in Caesar's household. Am I the only one thinking, ha, that's awesome. God, in his mysterious ways, is bringing the gospel to the Roman elite and the members of Caesar's household, not because of Paul's plans, but because of God's purposes and plans that are much, much greater. That's kind of the main thrust here, is it? Oh, brothers, brothers, sisters, I want you to know in Philippi, you've heard a report, I'm in prison, I'm okay. I'm doing fine. In fact, the gospel is in good shape. It is spreading not just through the imperial guard, but notice this little line here, verse 13, and to all the rest. It's very broad and vague. I would just suggest perhaps that it just means that word is spreading. Rumors are going all around. Hey, there's this guy, Paul. He's in jail. He's in jail for Jesus. Which brings us to the next little paragraph. When Paul starts to say that his imprisonment is causing some people to preach more boldly or some people to preach more cynically or to talk about Jesus from impure motives, which is kind of strange to think, right? Let's read these verses one more time, starting in verse 14 and then into 15. Now, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So that's one positive fruit. The gospel's advancing. People are seeing my imprisonment, seeing how God's saving soldiers or somebody in Caesar's household. Oh, that's so encouraging. Let's just boldly preach Jesus. That's verse 14. Now look at 15. Now, some people indeed do preach Christ from envy, rivalry, Others preach Jesus from a good heart, goodwill. The latter do it out of a heart of love, knowing that I have been put here to defend Jesus Christ and his gospel. But the former, well, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. And then here's the key line. Who are these people? What, what is going on? They want to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
Right? So the identity of these preachers is not clear. But we do know that they have bad motives. They're accurately portraying the gospel in some form or manner. And they hope that whatever they're saying makes Paul's imprisonment even more difficult. I think these people could be Christians that have really bad hearts. Maybe think of it as there's our church and then there's another church down the road and one of the pastors has a big head and an ego faithfully preaching the right true gospel but his motives are really bad. He just wants to have a big church and he doesn't care if he steals people from another church down the street. That would be one example of like sincere Christians have bad motives for preaching. I think there's probably way too many pastors that that's really their motive, puff up their big head. But at the end of the day, they're preaching the gospel. And Paul is saying, you know what? It's the gospel and I rejoice whether it's my church that gets big or somebody else's, at least in that case. I think more than likely, though, they're non-Christian people. And the stir and the buzz around Paul's imprisonment is starting to spread. And as people tell the story, they're talking about Jesus. They're talking about how Paul preaches that Caesar is not the Roman ruler over the Roman Empire. That's the true king and Lord and Savior. It's Jesus Christ who rose again from the dead. Did you hear what that guy Paul's been saying? Yeah, he talks about this man Jesus rising from the dead. And he is the one true ruler and and Lord over all, not Caesar. Yeah, they threw him in prison for that. Something like that is what I think he's referring to. And he is saying, doesn't matter. People are hearing about Jesus through even non-Christian people. Isn't that incredibly encouraging? Paul's imprisonment does not stop the progress of the gospel. Government persecution doesn't stop the progress of the gospel. Non-Christian people that have hearts that want to inflict more pain on Christians, they can't stop the power and progress of the gospel. I think it's really encouraging for you and for me to consider these lessons. And if you're struggling to believe whether or not this is still the case today, I have an incredibly encouraging story that I was thinking about with people preaching for bad motives. So to illustrate this point, um, this is a few hundred years ago. It was actually in the 1700s. It's from a Christian magazine that was written in 1794 talking about an event that happened in both Europe and America. It's called the Great Awakening. Two famous preachers really led the charge in this movement called the Great Awakening. It's like big time revival happening regarding Christians all over Europe and North America. Two of them were named George Whitfield and John Wesley. And these men were really famous. Wherever they went, They wouldn't go preach inside of churches mostly, but outside. And this was weird to a lot of people. And they thought that they should be kind of made fun of about this. Not only did they not like their doctrine of what they preached, but they didn't like their tactics for how they went about doing it. So their passionate preaching outdoors in the open air caused a stir. And people are talking about it all over during this great awakening. Hundreds of thousands of people, though, were coming to faith in Jesus. And I think similar to what we see in Philippians 1, Christ's name is getting out there by people that love what they're hearing and by people that are haters. On one particular occasion in Yorkshire, England, there was a man named John Thorpe 
He got together with some friends at a party, and Thorpe and some of his buddies, three other guys, thought it would be really funny to take bets to see who could do a better job impersonating John Wesley or George Whitfield. It was a hit. The people in the party loved it. Each of them took their turn doing their impersonation one by one. Then the last and final turn was John Thorpe. He stood up on a table, as each of them had did, flipped open the Bible, and then they pick a random text, and then they just start acting like George Whitfield and John Wesley. And just a little kind of parentheses in the story. So not only were they preaching outside and not in churches, but these men were like charismatic, dynamic, really kind of theatrical almost in their delivery, whereas the custom of the day was more of like, and now open your Bibles to Luke chapter 13, and I will talk monotone the entire time. And so that's what they would have been used to, is just kind of a very staid, dry preaching. And these guys were not like that. They were passionate preachers of the gospel. So that's what they started imitating was George Whitfield and John Wesley's kind of theatrical preaching performance. John Thorpe stands up before he opens his Bible and he says, nice try, buddies. I'm going to beat all of you. He opens his Bible. It's Luke 13, 3, picks his text, and it says, but unless you too repent, you all will likewise perish. Here's what the magazine said about the story. At that moment, conviction of sin seized John Thorpe. He proceeded to preach a real sermon, not in banter or mocking Whitfield or Wesley, but with the most serious earnestness. He got down from the table, and not a word was uttered regarding the bet of who did the best impersonation. There was profound silence through the entire party. John Thorpe left and went home. That'd be the last time in his life that he attended a party like that. Soon after this, he joined John Wesley himself and his team of preachers, and for the next 20 years, he preached the gospel until he died. Some people preach Jesus Christ out of envy or rivalry or selfish ambition or to mock Christian preachers, but you cannot stop the power and the progress of the gospel. It has been advancing through non-Christian, hard-hearted, pagan people and through well-meaning, sincere Jesus lovers. Whether Christ is being preached for good motives or bad motives, Paul's saying, guys, the sovereign God is in charge. The gospel is in good hands. I rejoice. So I want to ask you, brothers and sisters of Embassy Church, for the last two years, how many times have you heard someone, maybe even in this room, talk about Christians feeling persecuted by the government in the United States, feeling like our religious freedoms are being lost, worried about what's being taught in schools, or feeling like the government's trying to take away our religious liberties. Well, in the same way that the Roman government cannot stop the spread of the gospel in Paul's day, Embassy Church, I do not think we need to worry. Jesus Christ is still the same Lord yesterday. He's still the same Lord today. He's going to be the Lord tomorrow, regardless of what the American government does or does not do. Even when it looks like a church or a country is losing, the gospel is always winning and advancing. Even when a preacher is being shut up, sent out, exiled, God will spread the gospel. 
There is no one that has any authority higher and greater than Jesus Christ himself. And there is no political ruler and no political party agenda that will stop the progress of the gospel. And if you want to do a quick historical comparison, I'm sure there's plenty of history buffs in this room that can help you understand the oppression that Paul and the early Christians felt in their day. And then compare that to America, it's really not worth comparing. And yet they confidently believed with hope God would accomplish his purposes. So I want to encourage each of you to remember that nothing can stop the progress of the gospel. Secondly, nothing can stop the power of the gospel in the heart of a person, a believer who fully believes the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. I get this from verses 18 to 26, and it's Paul's personal hope that he has when he looks forward Notice the change. Verse 18 is kind of cut off by the paragraph, and I think it's actually a really great job by the Bible editors, and it's a really bad job by the original people that put Bible verses together. Verse 18 says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. End of paragraph. End of point regarding the things that happened in the past. Transition. Oh, and I will rejoice. Now everything is future tense. Now everything's talking about him looking to the next few days, weeks, months, years of his life. And he says, I'm going to keep rejoicing. I'm not only confident that God will continue to bring about the advancement of the gospel. I know for me personally in my own heart that through your prayers, through the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, which is none other than talking about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the manifestation of Jesus Christ. It's just another way of saying the same thing. That through prayers, through the power of the Spirit, in my heart and life, I, I will be delivered. Now that word deliver in Greek is actually saved. So does he think he's going to be saved from prison and get out of prison? I think so. I think that's what he means. Or does he mean that when he dies, he's going to be saved? I think that's what he means too. Do you think maybe he means this in kind of like a double entendre, double meaning of one phrase? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think he means that whether I'm saved and released from this prison, great, I'm saved. I can now go preach the gospel and encourage you all and visit with you, and we can have this great big reunion. But whether I die tomorrow, I'll be saved. That's the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it the gospel that our ultimate hope is that death doesn't win? And that there's a power inside of our hearts to look at death itself in the face and say, it's okay. Because my life is wrapped up in Jesus Christ and giving him glory and praise and that everything that I want to do with my life is summed up with Christ. And therefore, whether I live or whether I die, Jesus. If I live, then I serve Jesus. If I die, then I'm with Jesus. If I live, Jesus. If I die, Jesus. That's, that's what he's saying in this section. Verse 20, it is my eager expectation and hope. I won't be ashamed because of these chains. And that's me filling in the blank. I think that's what he's referring to. I'm not going to be shamed because I got thrown in prison. No, I have courage and confidence that now, just like always, Jesus Christ will be honored in my body. He'll be honored in my life or he'll be honored in my death. For me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Now, some of you have been around church long enough where you've heard that a lot. So I want to make sure we all understand whether you're first time here, don't know much about Christianity. The word Christ is the word Messiah anointed one, or king. 
It's not Jesus' last name. It's Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the anointed king. For me to live is the Messiah. For me to live is God's anointed king. For me, life is summed up by being a citizen of the kingdom of Christ. For me to live is being a member of his kingdom. For me, life is all about Jesus the Messiah. And dying? Well, that's good news too. Is this guy depressed? Is that why he's saying that? Man, I just can't wait to die. I'm just so tired of life right now. I want to die. Suicidal? No. This is not a suicidal note. The man is filled with joy from beginning to end of this letter. He's rejoicing. Do you remember the way the paragraph started? Yet I will rejoice. Dying is gain because, he explains. Verse 22. If I'm to live in the flesh, and this does not mean sinful flesh. This is just a euphemism or a phrase that means life in my physical body. So if I'm to live on the earth in this physical body, well, then that means fruitful labor to serve Jesus my king. But what should I choose? I can't tell. This is a hard decision. I feel like pressed. It's like a husband being asked, all right, if you had to have your wife die or your children die, which one would you choose? Uh, neither. It's a terrible decision. I don't want to press between those two choices. And Paul's kind of saying the same thing, but from a different angle. I could choose to be with Jesus right now, and that would be, what does he say? Far better. Because if I die, then I know I will be in union with and in the hands of Jesus Christ. But if I keep on living, that's verse 24, in the flesh, which is more necessary for the Philippians then that'll be great too because then I can help your progress and joy in the faith. And isn't it interesting? The dude's in prison and he wants to get out of prison for the joy of other people. Didn't we talk about this last week? That he cares about other people and prays for them and not himself? The theme comes up again. I want to get out of prison for your joy, for your faith, and for your progress in the gospel. Not because these chains are so uncomfortable, not because I'm concerned that the gospel is not going to spread, because I love you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that a heart of somebody that's been changed by Jesus? The spirit of Jesus is resting on them. It's no wonder then in next week's sermon, Lord willing, we're going to be talking about how we should consider others more important than ourselves. Paul's been doing that all through this letter already. That's kind of typifying just basic Christian discipleship. Living for the good and the joy and the progress of another person. Just downstairs, some of us were gathering at 10.15. All of you are welcome every week. We have a prayer meeting. And I was talking about how it's so normal for a Christian to want to help other Christians grow in the joy of following Jesus. I want to just ask each and every one of you, do you have any desire in your heart to help other people know about Jesus? Are you like Paul, where you think my life can be summed up by to, for me to live? is serving the Lord Jesus Christ and helping others know him. It shapes my prayers. That's last week's sermon. It shapes my ambitions. That's this week's sermon. I want to live. For what reason, Paul? To serve Jesus Christ. Well, what if you die? Well, then I'm with Jesus. That's how the gospel transformed someone in their heart. Now, 
Imagine you're the Roman government and you want to try and put this guy silenced, like stop him. You can't stop Paul. He's going to rejoice no matter what happens. How stoppable are you? What circumstances need to happen for you to start getting so discouraged that you have no hope? I mean, Paul could think about getting his head chopped off, being thrown in prison, and the man's rejoicing. Now, quick caveat. Some of you might take this the very wrong way. I don't mean that Paul was happy, clappy, joyful all the time. What I mean by this is that he had deep-rooted hope in the gospel. And because of that, we know from other letters, read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, the dude sometimes did get scared about death. So we're not talking some sort of amazing super Christian that never once feared and struggled with real difficult things in this world. But I think what we're seeing here in Philippians 1 is the basic hope of the Christian gospel message is that Jesus conquered death. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Do you really understand that if you were to die today, that you would be with Christ? Now, I think it's really, really important for us to think, what does that even mean? If you were to die today, you would be with Christ. Like physically, the way we're with each other right now, well, no, your body would be in the grave. So this is kind of a spiritual thing. The Bible actually has very few Bible passages that talks about life after death. And that may be a shock to some of you because a lot of you think, oh, that's what Christianity is all about. I live, I serve Jesus in the church, got it, got it, and then I die, and then I go and be with Jesus. Well, that's only half the story. There is a teaching right here that we're seeing that to live is Christ and to die is to be in the presence of Jesus in some kind of spiritual way but not permanently. The real hope that Paul has is actually giving Jesus a hug with a body and being resurrected from the dead with a new physical body. Well, that's not what he says here. No, that's what he says in just a chapter over. Look at chapter three, and you'll notice that he talks about the hope he has of resurrection. Chapter three, verse 20. Our citizenship is, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. If you walk through, as we will in a few weeks, the basic logic of Philippians, Paul's hope is not ultimately in life immediately after he dies. His ultimate hope is in life after life after he dies. Let me say that one more time. It's not life after death, the spiritual presence that he's with Jesus, no physical body. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, because I will immediately be in the presence of Jesus in some kind of spiritual way. Jesus tells a thief on the cross, that means paradise. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that to depart from this earthly tent is to be ushered into the presence of the Lord. It's all really vague. There's no specific details about what happens immediately after someone dies. But how many times do you go to a funeral and they're like, oh, they're looking down from heaven on us with eyeballs? They have eyes? Are they playing on clouds? I mean these very sincere questions. I want you to think, what is your hope in? Is it some sort of caricature of Christianity or is it actually the gospel? Christianity, Jesus, the king of the universe, lives in a human body, and he will forever and ever. And you, when you die, you'll be with him, but even greater, you'll be raised to life with him.
Look again at Philippians 3. Look at the way that he ends the first big paragraph. He says in verse 9 and following, I do not have a righteousness that is based on the law, but one that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that's from God that depends on faith. And that I know, and it's more of a prayer, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There it is again. You don't have to read too far in Philippians to see that Paul's hope Staring death in the face is not life after death, immediately being ushered into the presence of Jesus, spiritually speaking. Paul's hope is resurrection. It is that Jesus Christ was dead, hung on a cross for our sins. He was buried into the ground, and then three days later, first Easter, he's alive. And so when we gathered two weeks ago for Easter, and you all said, he is risen, He is still risen indeed. Let's try again. He is risen. Indeed, he's risen. Indeed, Jesus is alive right now. My good friend, Shai Lin, he's a Christian hip-hop artist. He goes, Gandhi is dead. Tupac is dead. Muhammad is dead. Buddha is dead. But Jesus, he's alive. Do you believe that that's the hope of Christian faith? That the power of the gospel could make you now unstoppable. Not just that the gospel's unstoppable, but that you could be unstoppable. How can you stop Paul? Well, Paul, we're going to kill you. Great! I rejoice! Jesus! Well, Paul, we're going to throw you in prison. Okay, I'll just preach to the people in prison. Well, we're going to let you out of prison. All right, I'll serve Jesus. What could you throw at this guy? This is unstoppable. And I encourage you to take these lessons into your heart and ask yourself, are you really stoppable? What trials come in that stop you in your tracks and you lose hope? You lose joy? Embassy Church, the elders have agreed that it would be wise to send the Howell family on a three-month sabbatical starting June 1. That means... When this Philippians sermon series is over, I will not be preaching from this pulpit for three straight months. Are you going to rejoice knowing that your elders have appointed for three straight months gospel preachers with what we understand to be good motives? Are you going to rejoice in knowing that even if your pastor who's preparing to undergo a somewhat major surgery soon to deal with blood clotting issues. What if I die? What if I go on sabbatical and I never come back? I was just personally reflecting on this, just based on the timeliness of this word. Do you think this would be a fitting word to encourage you all members? Encourage me? Encourage my family? For me, to live is summed up in serving Jesus the Messiah whether by life and fruitful labor at Embassy Church for hopefully decades, or whether I die, complications with a blood clot or surgery that none of us could have expected. Will the gospel fail? Will this church close down? Are we centered around me? Oh, I pray not. Remember Pastor Joseph? He was in Romania faithfully pastoring for decades, imprisoned, 
told to shut up and stop preaching the gospel. Eventually exiled. I wanted to finish and close by telling you the rest of the story. It's so encouraging. Pastor Joseph from Romania said that he learned the lesson that the power of the gospel will not be stopped in his own heart or in the church, even while he's in prison. From his own words, this is the accounting of what took place. While being interrogated by the secret police of the Romanian government, Pastor Joseph said to the soldiers, what is taking place here is not an encounter between you and me. This is an encounter between my God and me. And I want to assure you that my God is teaching me a lesson and he is doing it through you. Honestly, I don't know what it is right now. Maybe he wants to teach me several lessons, but this is what I know, sirs. What you will do to me while I'm in prison, God is allowing you to do. You will not go one inch further than what he allows. You are an instrument in the hands of my God. Then he said, he was reflecting on this time, and he says, I saw these men. They were pompous men, six of them. I saw them as puppets in the hands of my heavenly father. And during one interrogation, I told one of the officers who was threatening to kill me, I said it this way. I said, sir, can I just explain how I'm seeing this issue? You believe that your supreme weapon is to kill me. But what you need to realize is that my supreme weapon will be dying. Let me explain how this works. You should know by now that my sermon tapes have already started spreading all over Romania, which is why I'm in prison. So if you kill me, you need to realize that those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. Everybody will know that I died for preaching the gospel. And everyone who has a tape, they will pick it up and they will say, man, I better listen to that sermon again. This man he died for what he preached. He must have really meant it. He sealed his message with his life. Don't you see, sirs? My sermons will now preach 10 times louder than they did before I was put in prison and killed. You know, I'm actually going to rejoice in the supreme victory of you trying to kill me. When I said this, the interrogators sent me home immediately. Then another officer who was interrogating a pastor friend of mine said, yeah, we know that Mr. Joseph's son, he would love to be a martyr, but we're not so foolish to fulfill that wish. When my friend told me this, I stopped to consider the meaning of this statement. I remembered for how many years I had been so afraid of dying. I went around Romania trying to keep a low profile because I so badly wanted to live but I was wasting my life with inactivity. But when I learned, if I place my life on the altar and said, I'm ready to die for the gospel, then they could never kill me. Wherever I go, I could go. I did whatever I wanted and I preached knowing I was safe. As long as I was trying to save my life, I would lose it. But once I was willing to lose my life, I finally found it. So I was right. That first day of being interrogated, the Lord taught me many lessons during those trying hours. Meanwhile, the secret police, they heard the gospel several times. They saw the love of Christ in action, and I trust that we both came out better as a result. 
Brothers and sisters, I believe that this story sums up very well the, means, the, the message and the meaning of Philippians 1. Living is summed up in Jesus Christ. And when you're ready to realize that that's your everything, well, then nothing can stop you. Nothing can stop the gospel. And our hope should be in Christ. His death, his life, his resurrection. Pastor Tim Keller, formerly pastoring in New York at the Presbyterian Church there, Redeemer Presbyterian, he said it so well as he often does. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, that becomes true for you when you realize that for Christ to live was the church. Dying for the church. And dying became game for you. We can say for me to live is Christ because Christ said for me to live under the glory of the Father is to live for the sake of the church, the bride that I've come to rescue. You're only doing the very thing that Jesus first did. He first loved us. Now we can love him and give all of our lives to him because he gave everything for us. Let's close in prayer. Our gracious God, our heavenly Father, we come now in the name of your son Jesus, the one who gave his life for us. He came and died for our sins. He effectively took away the penalty of our sin and absorbed the wrath of your judgment against us. And everyone here who would repent of those sins and put their, their life into your hands, put their hope and their trust and their faith into Jesus Christ, they can have confidence that the Holy Spirit of God will change them and make them just as unstoppable as Paul describes here in Philippians 1. I pray, Father, a prayer of thanks now. I thank you for Christ, for the gift of salvation, a righteousness that comes from you that is apart from our good works. I thank you for the power of resurrection and the hope that that gives the finite mortal humans that we are. I thank you for the confidence that we can have as a church that the gospel will spread and advance no matter who's preaching up on this stage. I thank you for the confidence that we have that regardless of Embassy Church and whether or not this church even were to close down, the gospel's not going to stop spreading. Father, we thank you for the evidence of the power and the progress of the gospel. It's sitting right here around us. It's not just in a book, it's in flesh and blood. As we turn around and look at our neighbors and take the bread and the cup, we're seeing the demonstration of the, the progress of the gospel. Coming to Palatine, representative of people that are born from all over the earth. God, we thank you for the diversity and the unity we have now in Jesus, that our hope is found only in him, and that the actual definition of what it means to have life is Jesus. So God, we thank you for Christ, for your word, and we pray that we would honor your word in life and in death. In Jesus' name, amen.